You're listening to the 66 Podcast. It's a podcast where we study the books of the Bible, which is why we have named ourselves the 66. In case you didn't know, like our all of our uh, about 10 and under kids here at National Road know, there are 66 books in the Bible. It's surprising how many people don't even know that. Right. So that's what this podcast is all about. Yeah. Teaching that. And then maybe a few things. Right. If you don't get anything else, just know that there are 66 books in the Bible. Right now, we're in the Old Testament. We're continuing our series on Daniel. And last week, we talked about a really interesting, I guess that's the right word for it, interesting, uh, chapter in chapter 7 with the vision of the four beasts. A lot of interesting stuff going on there. Uh, And today, we're going to get into another vision in chapter 8, but maybe not quite as complicated, just because there's not as many moving parts, but it's it, it's probably it's, about the same. It's complicated. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like we're cutting chapter 7 in half, and then magnifying or zeroing in on the two middle kingdoms. So, just by way of review, last week... We saw four beasts representing Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Right. So today we're going to talk about Persia and Greece. And uh, that that's chapter 8. And we referred back to this chapter a couple of times in the last episode. Yeah. So it's really interesting to see the consistency between chapters 7 and 8. Uh, this chapter helped us out a lot last week in trying to suss out the meanings of some of the, some of the things there. So today we're zeroing in. I'm not sure why exactly. Um, this is going to have to do with history that is non-biblical. The 400 silent years, as they're sometimes called. The time between the testaments, mm-hmm. or the intertestamental period. I think Bible students need to be aware of that period. Uh, the books that discuss that period are not inspired. Maybe you've heard of the Apocrypha uh, and I believe Catholic Bibles have the Apocrypha in them. Uh, those Apocryphal books have several history books, namely First and Second Maccabees, that describe some of the things predicted by Daniel here. And since Daniel predicts them, or God through Daniel predicts them, and they do explain a lot of the attitudes that you read about in the Gospels, I think these events are important. Uh, those of you who haven't heard of these events or of those silent years may uh, be very interested in some of the things we talk about today because there's some really interesting stories that come from that time period. Uh, God just wasn't speaking through prophets or inspired men during that time. Mm -hmm. Uh, The time was um, becoming ripe for the Messiah. All that needed to be said in the Old Covenant had been said. All that needed to be established had been established. Uh, So we get the history of it, just not through a Bible. And um, let's let's focus on this prophecy, though. So, as uh, Andrew said in the setup, there are more beasts in this chapter, just two of them. And uh, this is uh, going to concern a ram and a goat. Now, when you hear ram and goat, sheep and goat, you think of sheep is good and goats are bad because of Mm -hmm. Matthew chapter 25 and the judgment day. 
but you really need to kind of take that out of your mind and remember this came first, and it really doesn't uh, gain anything from Matthew 25. And so we're just going to read it with a fresh set of eyes, and we're going to try to this, uh, I was starting to say this morning, whatever time of the day that, that you're listening. Um, I'm going to begin... In verse 1, we get the time set here, the third year of Belshazzar, and uh, that would mean this is two years after the vision that we read about in chapter 7. And then uh, we read about what Daniel saw. I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the capital, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. Uh, Some people think this means that Daniel wasn't actually in Susa, but his vision was about him being in Susa. Mm-hmm. I don't think it really matters, but um, just an interesting observation here. Belshazzar is a Babylonian king, so Susa was a Persian capital, so it's unlikely that Daniel was actually in Susa. He just, in the vision, he was in Susa. And he says he raised his eyes, and he says, I saw and behold a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westwards and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Um, So we're going to save a lot of the interpretation for Think. And, but uh, you note some of these details here might sound familiar, particularly the one that uh, there are two horns of the ram, and they were high, but one was higher than the other. Uh, in the chapter 7, we had a lopsided, was it a bear? Mm-hmm. He was stronger on one side than the other side. Yeah. And so we have a ram here, one horn bigger than the other horn. Horns always signify power and leaders and rulers and that kind of thing. And so he's pushing westward, northward, southward, and nobody can stand before him. So after reading about the ram, we get to the goat. And this is uh, verses 5 through 8. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west. Okay, so the ram came from the east because he was moving northward, southward, westward. Mm -hmm. Now here comes this goat from the west. And so he's come from the opposite direction. Uh, across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. You remember the leopard with wings? Mm-hmm. That was very fast. We referred back to this to, to describe the speed. This is the same nation depicted by the leopard with the wings in chapter 7, very quickly. And again, I'm trying to save some things for, for the next segment. Mm-hmm. Uh, he came to... Wait, I skipped a part. Uh, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Again, something else that we had seen in chapter Mm 7. 
I'm forgetting. What was it? There was four of something in chapter seven. With the wings. Were, were there four wings? There's four something. I should have looked that up. I I'm thought I could remember you. it, but I didn't. Yeah, four wings on its back. Beast had four heads. Dominion was given. So I think that's yeah, the four more heads. analogous to the four heads, probably. Yeah, yeah, the the beast with the four heads, right. Yeah. Okay, so we've had the, the ram with two horns, and then the one-horned male goat that later had four horns. Uh, and then we come to a little horn. Again, something we saw in chapter 7, but we need to stress that this is a second little horn, not the same little horn that we read about in chapter 7. And again, Crystal I clear. What, I, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know what it is. I just get this cartoonish image in my mind every time I read about this little horn, especially the second one, of this little angry horn with a face on it that yeah. screams at people all the time. <laughs> yeah. But uh, this is a different little horn. Okay, so hang on. From okay, I, I just want to recap here so I can get my ducks in a row. That so, might be helpful. In this chapter, so far, Daniel has seen a ram with two horns, one higher than the other, who becomes great. And at the end yes. of verse four, nobody can stand before him. Okay, and then this goat comes along from the other side of this mountain or scene or wherever they are. He comes up, he has one horn in the middle of his head, and he comes up, tramples the other one, and then, after he tramples the ram, the one horn on the goat's head is broken, and four horns come up where the one horn was, and out of one of those four horns, there's another little, little like you said, the the little horn, the angry... The angry little horn of verse 9. Yeah. Uh, he grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, which has to be Jerusalem, right? From Daniel's perspective, so you get kind of some directions here. Let's see if he's going south, east. He's coming from the west, just as the goat came from the west. I have mm-hmm. to be careful. I get these beasts mixed up here. So he's associated. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Um, For now, we'll just say this is not the same little horn as chapter 7. So verse 10 says, It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. I hope you have some comments on that one, because uh, I'm a little confused by that statement. Mm -hmm. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to, the, to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. I want to say a little about interpreting these apocalyptic books. Um, you know, a lot of times you'll hear, you'll, you'll have the person having the vision overhearing a conversation between two angels, yeah. or two heavenly ones, or a couple of elders or you know some other strange beasts or creatures mm-hmm. and sometimes we get hung up on okay who is the first speaker and who is the second speaker when in reality it's just kind of a, a, a device in apocalyptic literature and in visions to give information and to show that the information is a revelation from heaven 
and not something that the person receiving the vision came up with on his own. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to figure out who these people were, the Holy One speaking and another Holy One. It doesn't matter. If it had mattered, they would have been identified. Mm -hmm. Uh, The point is, Daniel learned by revelation, not by study, discovery, or any other thing that he did on his own power, that this persecution uh, led by the little horn was to last for 2,300 evenings and mornings. That That's the main thing that we're to take away from that. Right. Um, we'll talk about who this little horn may be uh, in the next segment. I think that would be best to save it, save it for that. And uh, let me just uh, skip over to some other things. A lot of interpretation is given in verses 15 and following, so I'm going to save that. Um, And I'm going to point out that uh, Daniel in the last verse was overcome and he lay sick for some days. And then he says, I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. That's kind of how the last chapter ended too. Isn't that right? He was sick over what he... He, uh, his thoughts greatly alarmed him and his color changed, but he kept the matter to his heart. And now he's uh, even more affected by the vision. He lay sick for several days and uh, he was appalled by the vision. And so uh, that's, if I read more than that, I feel like we're going to be getting into what we're planning to do in the next segment. Yeah, I think uh, did so. Did I skip too. anything that you wanted to highlight in this first segment? I don't think so. Um, you did mention uh, in verse 13 that the sanctuary is going to be given over. Yeah, that's um, important. Yeah, it's going to be very important as we get into this next section. see how this goes, Andrew. I, I'm not sure. You know, we were talking before I turned the the recorder on, and uh, I told you that my goal was to make this clearer than the last episode. Right. But, it, you know, it seems doable until you start doing it, and you just think, man, if, if I, it's hard to put yourself in the shoes of somebody just listening and, you know, hearing a lot of this stuff for the first time. We hope that you're at least getting a taste of Daniel. But you have to understand, if you're getting frustrated because some of the stuff is unclear to you, we're in some of the toughest parts of the Bible to understand right now. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the point of the project that we're doing at the 66 is we're not going to skip anything. We're going to do all 66 books, which means sometimes we're going to get into some passages that are rarely taught in church that uh, we rarely read or think about and uh, we believe that you know all Scripture is breathed out by God, Second Timothy three, and we need to pay attention to all of it. And uh, some of it's easy to understand, some of it's very complicated. And I think we're in the complicated part right now. I don't think anybody would disagree with me on that one. But um, let's just go through the three symbols, the three outstanding symbols, and see if we can find an interpretation for them. Now, our listeners that tuned in in chapter 7 might have a pretty good idea about the first two, meaning the, the ram and the goat. The ram 
had these two horns, one higher than the other. And, you know, we talked about the the bear from chapter 7, you know, having being lopsided like this. And our interpretation in the last episode of that lopsided figure was that we were talking about the Medo-Persian government, in which the Medes ruled along with the Persians, but the Persians were certainly the dominant government. Right. Uh, you know, Darius the Mede is in chapter 6 of Daniel, but Persia is in control. Darius is over Babylon, but we talked about how he was probably ruling alongside of or even under King Cyrus, who isn't mentioned. Mm-hmm. So whenever you see this lopsided figure in the book of Daniel, which I think this is the only two places you see it in chapters 7 and 8, you have a really interesting way to describe the Medes and Persians. Yeah. And I'd like to just point out real quick, we're not figuring this out by some like grand revelation or something. Uh, verse 20 says this, As for the ram you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. <laughs> okay. So they come right out and tell you in the second half of the chapter, yeah, Daniel, does his, that. Daniel does his best job to keep this, or I guess to make it, simple-ish for us to understand. Yes. Um, And we know, certainly like you said, we know the reason that one of those horns is bigger than the other is because Persia, certainly when Cyrus the Great comes along, winds up uh, bringing Persia to prominence much more so than media. Yeah, right. All right, you ready for the goat? Let's go to the goat. I'm ready. We got this goat. He's fast. He's moving from the west. Uh, We have a succession here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just two governments instead of four. But if you remember the timeline that we've gotten from chapter 2 and from chapter 7, it goes like this. Babylon, Greece. No, no. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. And we're just in those two middle governments, which is Persia, Greece. So already, even if you didn't understand any of the symbols, if you knew that the first one is Persia, then the one that comes directly after it's got to be Greece. Right? Right. And then you do have the interpretation in verse 21 the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. Now, who's that first king going to be? Alexander. Alexander. Most likely. Uh, you have Alexander represented as this uh, conspicuous horn, meaning a horn that is plain and easy to see. Mm-hmm. In Alexander's day, there was no doubt who was in charge at that time. And he's strong and quick, but this horn was broken. And it doesn't say it was broken by another beast or another kingdom or anything, just Mm -hmm. that it was broken, almost suggesting uh, divine providence here. And uh, that matches up with Alexander's life, which was cut short at the age of uh, 32, I think. I may have that wrong, but he was a young man when he died. He died unexpectedly, and so they were unprepared for that. And they had not thought about who would follow him. And so the entire Greek empire was divided up among Alexander's four generals. And we saw a little example of that in chapter 7, where in verse 6, you have this leopard with four wings of a bird on his back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. So now instead of four heads, we have four horns, uh, conspicuous horns, that come up instead of the one big horn. These are the four generals. Uh, you have Lys- 
these word these names are hard to pronounce. Lysimachus. Lysimachus. I'm just thinking. The only two I can remember are the Ptolemies and Seleucids. So I just got Ptolemy and Seleucus. Those are the only two I've got. Lysimachus. Well, there's a reason for that. Well, you Mm. got Lysimachus. He took Asia Minor. Asia Minor at this point is not important to the Jews. Then Mm. uh, Cassander had Greece. Greece at this time not important to the Jews. Seleucus or Seleucus? I call him Seleucus. Yeah, I do too. Seleucus took Syria and the east. Now that's getting close to Jerusalem there. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the reasons you know about the Seleucids, named Mm -hmm. after this general Seleucus. And then you have have Ptolemy, who had Egypt and Palestine. Palestine includes Jerusalem, so Ptolemy is important. By the way, Mm -hmm. uh, Ptolemy is spelled P-T-O-L-E-M-Y. So those are the four generals. The only two that biblical students are concerned about are the last two that I mentioned. Seleucus, who took Syria and the east, including part of Israel, and Ptolemy, who had Egypt and Palestine, which included the rest of Israel. And Seleucus, I think, is going to, and I guess I'll figure out what you think about this little horn here, but Seleucus in particular is important because he is probably the horn out of which that little horn grows. Yes, I agree. Okay. I agree. Uh, before we get to the, the little screaming, wrathful horn, um, let me point out that the section in the middle of Daniel 8 that contains the interpretation is brought to us by none other than the, the angel Gabriel. Right, um, yeah. Verse 16, Daniel hears a man's voice between the banks of the Uli. That's where he was in his vision. And it called Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. And so all of the explanations that you have in verses 18 through 26 are given to us by Gabriel, the messenger angel. Mm -hmm. Same angel who came to Joseph and Mary and announced the birth of Jesus Christ. Okay, so um, uh, here's Gabriel's explanation. Uh, We read about the ram in verse 20. We read about the goat in verse 21. In verse 22... He says that as for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. So that's what we have here is those four generals who come up and uh, they take the place of Alexander. So, so far, it's making pretty good sense. It's pretty general here. Now, um, Mm -hmm. let's go back to the, the little horn. I want to call him the second little horn, not to be confused with the little horn of chapter 7. And somebody right. says, well, how do you know that? Well, because the little horn in chapter 7 came up in the fourth empire. Which is Rome. It's going to be Rome. And we discussed his identity. I don't think it's as easy to get to the identity of the little horn in chapter 7 as it is to get to the identity of the little horn in chapter 8. Definitely. Um, we talked about maybe chapter 7 referring to Domitian, we don't know for sure, and it's no. not really all that important. But here, there are a lot of clues about this guy. Um, and he comes up in the Greek Empire. Yeah. Uh, we already read the description of him in verses 9 through 12. I'm not going to go back over that. but I, Well, I am going to just pick out the highlights here. You remember that he was called exceedingly great. And he grew towards the direction of the south, the east, and the glorious land, which is Jerusalem. Uh, he grew up to the host of heaven and cast down to the ground some of the host 
and even exalted himself to be as great as the prince of the host, verse 11. Mm-hmm. Now, prince of the host sounds to me like a Messiah character or even mm-hmm. God. Yeah. So I was kind of taken aback by that. And you yeah. said you had some ideas on that, so I'd love to hear that. Yeah, it comes up again in verse 25 where we're talking about uh, the little horn again. It says, By his cunning he will make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. And so that phrase there, uh, prince, is from a Hebrew word, uh, sar, which means chief ruler, military leader. Uh, So when we say prince of the host, prince of princes, we're talking about, I think the NIV translates it well when it says the commander of the host. Kind of Certainly in the context here, he's talking about uh, this large group uh, being with that word host, a big group of people here. They're mentioned as stars. Uh, So this is the one that's in charge of them. And it looks like, like you said, the language is similar to Jesus being called uh, prince several times. But most likely this is referring to God uh, himself. In verse 11, it says the burnt offering was taken away and his place of sanctuary was overthrown. So at this time, obviously, this commander and his place of sanctuary were talking about God. The place of his sanctuary. Right. The place of his sanctuary. Right. And we're talking about the temple. Um, Well, what confused me was that the text says in verse 11... The little horn became great, even as great as the prince of the host. Right. But I think verse 25 has helped us out with that a little bit. Yeah, right? 25 tells you, first of all, that he's great in his own mind. Yeah. So he. So whenever you read that, that in verse 11, that yeah. that's his delusion. That's not yeah. the I think truth. Verse, that's not fact. Uh, verse 11 is translated well in the NIV. It says the little horn even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. So it just brings out that interpretation you're talking about. It brings it out right there in the text, which I definitely think is correct. I don't think um, that Daniel is saying here that this little horn is going to become just equal with God, become as great as God. So your understanding of God kind of forces your interpretation there. Yeah. Uh, That helps. Now, going back and just uh, reminding... Well, you already mentioned a couple of these things, but it's important to note from what we read in the last segment that he's taking daily sacrifices away. The place of God's sanctuary is going to be overthrown. That has to be the temple. Uh, he has this army that opposes the daily sacrifices. Um, the New King James Version reads this way in verse 12. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. And then finally, truth is thrown to the ground, which means he, you know, he's stepping on the truth or he's, he's perverting the truth. So who is this guy? There is very little doubt that this particular person, described as the second little horn, is a character that is very important in Jewish history, but most Christians haven't heard about him before or haven't studied him at all. He doesn't appear in the Bible. He comes up, as we said before, 
in that intertestamental period between the Old and New Testaments, the 400 silent years. And it's a Greek king or a Seleucid king, Seleucid mm-hmm. being the term indicating that this is part of the empire that came that descended down from that fourth general of Alexander's, right. uh, Seleucus. This king's name was Antiochus IV Epiphanes, one of the greatest enemies of the Jewish people in history. Um, let me give you a few facts about him. Antiochus IV was the eighth king of the Seleucid dynasty. Um, which was itself one of the four powers that we talked about, uh, represented by the four horns after the death of Alexander. In verse 23, Gabriel calls him a king of bold countenance, one who understands riddles. I love the NIV on that one. Instead of one who understands riddles, the NIV has master of intrigue. (laughs) Nice. He is a master of intrigue. That's going in my bio right yeah. there. <laughs> it's going to be well, I don't little, know if you want oh, that Oh, yeah, one. I don't want to be associated. Antiochus was a bad guy. Man, that'd be a great little thing on Twitter, your bio. <laughs> but, you know, there are a lot of examples that you know I'm not going to take the time to get into. You can look up the life of Antiochus and study it on the Internet. But, uh, you know, it's certainly true of him that he was uh, deceitful. He was cunning. He was very shrewd. Uh, he... Master of Intrigue, is that what it was? Yeah, Master of Intrigue. Master of Intrigue. Uh, So he was very, very much that. The first thing that he did is he seized the throne from his nephew, and then immediately after that he launched a campaign of conquest in the Middle East, including Palestine. Uh, You'll remember that Palestine was a territory that initially belonged to the Ptolemies, the the government that descended down from Ptolemy, the fourth Mm -hmm. general, Um, So he is fighting with the Ptolemies. He invades Egypt, which was the other part of the government belonging to the Ptolemies, in 170 to 169 B.C. So you see those dates correspond with the time between the Testaments. And then when he got to Jerusalem, he tried to impose religious and cultural uniformity by suppressing Jewish worship. He was zealous for Greece. He was just as zealous for Greek culture as the Jews were for their own culture. And we all know that, you know, by the time Christ and his disciples came on the scene, the universal language was Greek, which was Mm -hmm. helpful to God's purposes. The New Testament was written in Greek because of the influence, we say, of Alexander the Great. But it wasn't just Alexander the Great. Uh, All of these Seleucids also helped bring that about, and the Ptolemies and the others, uh, they they were not just on a mission to control lands. They were on a mission to homogenize the people mm-hmm. under their influence. Very different policy than you had with Persia. Because Persia was like, as long as you pay your taxes, you can have your, your own places of worship, you can have your own culture. Uh, Rome was very benevolent in that way also. Yeah. But the Greeks weren't. The Greeks wanted uh, you to f- to speak Greek They wanted you to worship their gods. They wanted you to appreciate their culture and their ways and their politics. Yeah. And so he was doing this in Palestine, and the Jews, unlike many, many other places, the Jews were very resistant to this because their religion was tied to their culture. Their covenant was tied to their culture. Uh, They were God's chosen people. And while they had made a lot of mistakes and sinned greatly, uh, after they were released from exile, 
they were as zealous about their ways as Antiochus was about his ways. Uh, so he starts trying to force their hand. In 175 BC, he expelled the high priest, and he replaced the high priest with a Hellenistic priest. Mm -hmm. How do you think that went over with the Jews? Things got worse. He ended the daily sacrifices, just as we read in Daniel. He ended the daily sacrifices at the temple. He forbade circumcision made it a crime to possess a copy of the Jewish scriptures. Um, and then in 168 B.C., he finally seized Jerusalem, and he sent 20,000 troops into the city of Jerusalem. He erected an idol of Zeus inside the temple, and then he desecrates the altar by offering up a pig on the altar of God. And that, with the Jews, was the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, we can. This is going to come up again in Daniel, and so we'll talk about it some more. But when he did that, a group called a family called the Maccabees led the Jews on a campaign for independence, and they won their independence. Right. And for about a hundred years, uh, Israel or Judah, Jerusalem was independent again. Mm -hmm. It didn't last long, but it's pretty amazing that they were able to do that. Yeah, and that happened. Uh, he was successful in that revolt in 165, and he rededicated the temple. And this, that whole episode, that point in history, is what the festival of Hanukkah celebrates. Yes. It celebrates the time when the Yeah, it's not... A lot of people think, well, Hanukkah is the Jewish Chris Christmas. No, it doesn't have anything to do with Christmas. It has right. everything to do with this... It's like the Jewish Independence Day. Yeah. yeah. It's more like the 4th of July than Christmas. Mm -hmm. um, well, let me say one more thing about Antiochus IV. Uh, his nickname was Epiphanes. And you know, Gabriel said in verse 25, and we've talked about this, in his own mind he shall become great. Well, that's indicated by this nickname. Epiphanes means, uh, the, the well, it's short for God made manifest. In Greek, that's Theos Epiphanes. Mm -hmm. So if you're calling yourself, and he had this inscribed on the currency that they used, if you're saying, I am God made manifest, you're basically you're saying, people should worship me, I am God. Mm -hmm. That's how bold Antiochus IV was. Right. And some people, what's the play on words there? Some called him Epimanes, is that it? Which means like madman. There's a I don't know. I there's a play on it. It's Epimenes, or I, I think that's what it is. Somebody huh. can check me on that. Google it. E P I M A N E S. I think that's how you spell it. But it's a play. People will call him Antiochus the Fourth Epimenes, basically making fun of him, saying he's a, a well, crazy. Yeah, he was for saying crazy. what he said. Which yeah, you're right. He was. If crazy. you slaughter a pig on the altar of the Jewish temple, you're nuts. Yeah. Okay, um, so can I? Can I do another recap here? You can do just anything so I can... you want. Okay. All right. Uh, man, anything I the want. And what I'm going to do is recap what we talked about. Uh, okay. So we've got the, from the very beginning, the ram is Persia, obviously, or media and Persia. Medo-Persian Empire. Persia is represented by the horn that's bigger. The goat that comes along is Greece. He's really fast. Alexander conquered uh, the Gre what became the Grecian Empire at a very um, 
very fast pace. He comes up. He's the horn on the goat. So the goat is representative of Greece as a whole, and the horns are the rulers. The first horn is Alexander. He is broken. Four come up in his place, and those are the four generals that you mentioned. One of those horns, which we're going to identify as Seleucid, um, or Seleucus, who's going to be responsible for that Seleucid dynasty, obviously where the name comes from. Out of that line of kings, one king is going to rise up, uh, identified here as this little horn who becomes great. So he's only a little horn for a little while, apparently. Um, and this is going to be identified as this guy that we just spent so much time talking about, Antiochus IV. Yeah, that's pretty good. And this Maybe is we all intertestamental inter, inter stuff right here, right? Yes. It's all yeah. intertestamental history. If you want... You can look up First uh, and Second Maccabees and get pretty much all of this history. Uh, I'll read a portion of First Maccabees to kind of give you a taste of of what that's like. This is First Maccabees chapter one verses twenty one through forty nine. Uh, Antiochus entered the sanctuary and took away the golden altar and candlestick and all the vessels thereof and the temple showbread, the pouring vessels, and stripped the temple of the ornaments of gold. For the king had sent letters by messengers unto Jerusalem and the cities of Judah that they should forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices and drink offerings in the temple, and that they should profane the Sabbaths and festival days and pollute the sanctuary and holy people, set up altars and groves and chapels of idols and sacrifice swine's flesh and unclean beasts, that they should also leave their children uncircumcised and make their souls abominable with all manner of uncleanness and profanation, to the end that they might forget the laws and change the ordinances. So in that, you get the motives of Antiochus. Yep. Um, he is um, he is wanting to change their entire mindset, change their culture. Now, uh, let's get into the 2300 evenings and mornings real quick here. Uh, that is in verse 14 when uh, Daniel is seeing in the vision... He's overhearing this celestial conversation about how long is this going to last. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can interpret it in a, in a couple of ways. It could be 2,300 days, which is the first thing that I thought of, which comes out to be about six years and 111 days. Mm-hmm. There's There are all kinds of problems with that historically when you try to match that up with, with dates. So another way to look at it is he does say... 2300 evenings and mornings and he could be saying that's 1150 days and 1150 evenings you know what I mean mm-hmm. which cuts that in half to be like 3 years and 55 days and that's the best possibility because it's roughly the time from Antiochus's repression of Jewish worship in 168 to the reconstruction of the temple by Judas Maccabeus on December the 14th, 164 B.C. Um, So that may be what it is, but the main point is that it's not going to last forever. Yeah, I think that's the the main idea behind it. I don't know that it's an exact to-the-day prophecy, and it may very well be, but I think we just kind of, with history, it's hard to peg that and say, okay, this is the day on which Antiochus, or the persecution of Antiochus began. Yeah. This is when all that started. 
and then here's the day I guess we do have the day when the temple was rededicated but it's hard to peg the beginning of that uh, I think like you said the point there is just it has it this is a finite amount of time yeah yeah um, and we have an application on that I think that that we need to make whenever we come to the end uh, speaking of the end, several times Gabriel tells Daniel the vision is from the time of the end. And that's another confusing thing to me. I mean, you know, when we think of the end, we think of Judgment Day. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to read this from a, the perspective of a Jewish person living in, what is this, 6th century mm-hmm. B.C. And uh, they're not dwelling so much on Judgment Day as they are political events. And uh, it could mean that this persecution would come upon Israel toward the end of the Old Testament era, during this intertestamental period, which may not be a big deal to us as Christians, but it was a big deal to the Jews that prophecy was ending, mm-hmm. new covenant books were ending. I shouldn't have said it that way. New old covenant books were ending. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, their their chapter is being finished uh, so that the Messiah could come. Uh, so anyway, that, that little phrase there, it's like a lot of these things. It can be interpreted in a variety of ways. Yeah. But I think the best interpretation is that the end would have to do with the end of the Old Covenant. Yeah, it has to do with the end of this historical chain of events right here. Yeah. So when we say the end, that's where the end the time of the end encompasses all this intertestamental stuff. We're not talking about um, end of time as we know it. Yeah, yeah. I it just couldn't. It wouldn't work that way. All right. Well, we did our best. I hope that you're thoroughly confused, and uh, we're going to take a little break here, catch our breath. We'll come back, see if we can find anything practical about Daniel chapter eight. figurative riddle and pray that we are half as clever as Antiochus IV. <laughs> half as clever as the angry little horn. Master who, of intrigue. The master of intrigue who several times in this it is said that he um, how does it put about riddles? He understands riddles. Well let's see if we can understand riddles at least enough to get some practical applications. Here's the first one I want us to think about. And Christians really need to know this. And that is, evil sometimes wins. Now, I'm not talking about the war. I'm talking about the battles. Sometimes evil wins a battle here and there. Sometimes evil wins a lot of battles over and over and over again. A lot of back-to-back battles. And the Bible is not wrong when evil wins. You know, it's not like critics say, well, like the scoffers in Peter's day... Well, everything looks like it's been untouched by God, that evil's winning and so on. Uh, The Bible concedes that this is the world we're in, Mm -hmm. where sometimes the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. But that leads me to point number two. When God's people suffer, God puts a time limit on that persecution or pain, on that trial. It's always 
finite. That's the word mm-hmm. you used. Yeah. And that makes me think of the 2,300 evenings and, and mornings. Yeah. That number, as you said, may just be there to say there's going to be an end to this. Mm-hmm. It's not going to last forever. It's finite. Yeah, and I think the great thing about that is we have the exact same promise now. You know, all throughout the Bible, you have people asking God how long, how long. David uh, says that same thing in the Psalms and Revelation. Um, you know, the group of believers ask God how long. Uh, people under distress like this, they're waiting on God. They always ask how long. I think yeah. sometimes, like you said, we get in situations in life where life where we feel like evil is winning continually where things continue to go bad for us one tragedy after another and you know i think a lot of us have been here where we have thought you know how long how long is this going to happen and the great news is it's not going to last for forever it's not going to last for eternity uh there's a good chance it probably won't even last for the rest of you know our physical lives as far as the lives that we have here on earth in the current bodies that we inhabit. So I just think it's it's comforting to know that there is there is there's a finite end set to our suffering, to all sufferings that we face. Yeah, and the problem is that since we don't know what that time is, we don't know what I think it's good that we don't know really what twenty three hundred evenings and mornings means. Mm-hmm. There's a lesson in that. We don't know the end to our persecution, our suffering, etc. We don't know what's going to happen in the end. That's what tempts us to give up. Mm-hmm. But we just need to take it by faith that there is an end and there's a purpose for what's going on today in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Uh, that also reminds me of Romans 8.8. 8, I think it's 8.18. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that shall be revealed to us. Yeah. Uh, You know, it's a light, momentary affliction. If you're in the middle of it, that's almost insulting. You know, you'd be tempted to think that. But at the end of it, you're really going to look back and see that that was Mm -hmm. a light, momentary affliction. There was an end to it. I should have had more faith through it. Yeah, I think a good attitude, uh, like you said, in the middle of it, it's hard to have this attitude. But knowing and understanding that there's an end to the suffering that you're going through can be one of the big things that pulls you through it. You know, yes. people all the time say, um, you know, if they have to do something difficult or they don't want to do for a s- certain amount of time, I've often heard people say, oh, I can do anything for a couple months. Yeah. Or oh, I can yeah, do right. anything for a year. If you know the amount of time, then, and if that's your attitude as you go through it, it can make it easier for you to pull through. Yeah. Um, You know, Daniel here, let me add this as a third lesson. Truth or prophecy sometimes can be a burden. Uh, Now, why was Daniel alarmed? Why was he sick several days? Why was he appalled by the vision? Not because of what it meant to him, but because of what it would mean for his kinsmen in the future. Highly sympathetic here. Uh, So what made me go to that one next is thinking about, you know, there's an end to this and we sound like we're just painting everything rosy and 
hey, even if you're going through hard times, that's that's not really all that bad. We're not saying that. Daniel wasn't even the one that was going to have to go through this stuff with the little horn, and he was appalled by it. He was touched by the pain that they would suffer momentarily for a light uh, for a short period of time. But he also kept his perspective. And so we need to learn that. Another thing off of that is that, you know, we often think having the truth is easy. Or, you know, man, I wish I could have been a prophet and received these revelations. And we've probably mentioned this before with regard to Mm -hmm. Daniel, but this was a burden on these prophets to do these things. I think in particular about the prophets who prophesied in this time period, Daniel, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah. In all three of those prophecies, you have statements to the fact that this was hard for them to be a prophet. Yeah, They suffered for it. If they had not had the prophecies, their lives would have been easier than they were as prophets. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's move on from that. Ultimately, God's people will be victorious. This is like the book of Revelation. Eventually, the bad guys will lose and the good guys will win. God has a plan. Again, we don't know it to its fullest. We know what we need to know. And one of those things that we know is that in the end, God's people will be victorious if they are faithful to Him. Um, And here's the last one I've got. And I'm sure you'll have a few things to say about this one, Andrew. Uh, Providentially, God prepared the world for the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. A lot of the things we're reading about here are set in that time period we've been calling the intertestamental time period of the Bible. That time period wasn't very fruitful in terms of prophecy, but politically it was very fruitful. A lot of a lot of things were happening in Palestine, namely Greek culture becoming universally understood, the Greek language being universally spoken, and then Rome's policies that led to there being more roads, better roads, uh, the ability to travel from place to place, uh, a little more benevolence in terms of independence among nations. And all of those things came together at the right time to make it ripe for the gospel. So when Jesus and his disciples came on the scene, they could travel about, speak Greek, and spread the gospel. Uh, They had the ability to go from place to place that may not have been there before Rome. Mm -hmm. So, you know, God did all of this, and he did it providentially. There was was a right time for Christ to come. Uh, Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. That's fascinating to me. We're reading about this time when there was no vision, there was no prophecy, and yet God was still involved. And mm-hmm. that ties in to the theme of Daniel, the sovereignty of God. Right. Uh, he was in control this whole time, even when the little horn was making problems for God's people. Yeah, that was that was the one other thing I was going to mention, is even with one of the worst rulers, from a, from a uh, follower of God's standpoint, one of the worst rulers in the history of the world, even during his time, God was still in control. Yeah. God still um, not only was aware of the situation, but was controlling the situation. And yeah. I think that's very comforting 
for us especially as we're coming up on an election oh, i don't think anybody is anybody is too jazzed about, i'm not comparing any of these guys to antiochus the fourth but no, i don't think anyone's time i don't think anybody's too jazzed about the front runners right now well some people are they're the ones that put them there um yeah so we digress. Are. This is not a political podcast. This is a Bible podcast, and we're glad that you joined us today. Uh, you can find us on the internet at the66.net. 66 is a number um, in all of our social media accounts and on the web. You can find us on Facebook. Just search the 66 podcast. Same thing on Twitter. Our handle is at the 66 podcast. For those of you out there who are on the Instagram and the <laughs> Snapchamp, we don't have either one of those currently. Drew might get us into Instagram and Snapchamp. I know he's no. a big, he's a big. Are they calling Snapchamper. it Snapchamp Snap now? That's on that commercial. The mom oh, yeah, calls it Snapchamp. Yeah, this is really going to date this podcast. Like years <laughs> from now, yeah. when Snapchat's been dead for, it's like the MySpace of today. Let's hope so. Yeah. Probably so. Uh, but you can find us all over the web. Uh, send us an email. Uh, positive reviews go to A. Kingsley at ARCOC. <laughs> Negative reviews to D. Send Kaiser. Send them my way. Yes. D. Kaiser I love at ARCOC.com. <laughs> um, for more information mm-hmm. on either Drew or myself, you can find us at ARCOC.com. And I think that pretty much covers our normal sign off info not leaving anything out yeah I think at this point people are just sick of hearing us talk so we'll come back for our next episode and talk about Daniel chapter 9 and that's it I don't have any catchy tagline until next time everything that just came to my head was way too cheesy (laughs) yeah stay classy